Thank you very much for joining us. We are going to cover one of your many multitude of books. The title is Gen a book that I've been reading through today. The title is On the Genesis 6 Affairs Sons of God, Angels Are Not. A search in Christian commentaries, including the Nephilim. So, Ken, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate you and your audience. Great to be talking to you again. Well, we've got 25 viewers, so some people have attended are interested in this subject, as am I. You know, I've heard a lot of discussion in the Christian communities about Genesis 6. And, I mean, before we get into the subject of your book, maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself and how you became a writer. Well, that could be a really long story, but in essence, uh, looking back, to my youngest years, I realized that I have always been on a quest to find the truth. And through the years, that just has spread into many directions to where, uh, for instance, uh, just to jump directly or, or on why I became a writer, it's just an outreach of me being a researcher. And I'm a researcher because once I get a hold of something I'm interested in, I find that I have a healthy, obsessive side. Uh, <laughs> so if something catches my interest, then I will research it and research it and research it, I mean, from every conceivable angle until I'm just mentally exhausted and feel I have a firm grasp of it. And then I boil it down, as you have to do when you're doing writing. You have to set parameters for yourself, of course. And that is a big this part of learning, actually, is distilling all the information down to where you can explain it to somebody else in an understandable manner. Good point. And so, uh, for instance, with this topic, uh, yeah, the book you mentioned is a very specific one that covers the history of commentaries on this passage. Uh, but then I did a separate book called What Does the Bible Say About Angels? Then I have another one that's going to be published any day now, which is a follow-up, which is what does the Bible say about demons? So that's part of a series. And then, yeah, so um, I have a great deal of publications dealing with subjects like this. One of the books is called The Paranormal and Early Jewish and Christian Commentaries. And this is over a millennia's worth of comments on angels, cherubim, seraphim, Satan, the devil, demons, the serpent, and the dragon. So that was a fun project because it's over 500 pages, and all I did is write the intro. <laughs> the rest of it, I just provide you quotations and citations from what other people have said for around a thousand years. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's your style in a lot of your books actually is very much research oriented, right. you know, going back and looking through voluminous different sources to kind of uh, research and get insight into what the real meaning of that is. And that Genesis six is a fairly short passage, but it's a reference so often, you know, there's like a whole industry at Nephilim industry or, you know, this, these discussions are significant part of like, common current christian discourse and discussion yes there are certainly circles within which this is a huge huge topic and it branches out into very many different directions in fact right and uh so when, when you started you know you using your research skills when you started 
looking into this, I mean, how did you find all of these references to this passage in so many different, I mean, you covered not only Christian sources, but also Jewish, Jewish sources as well. Right. So just to focus on that book, my point was to understand of every known person who wrote about this text from before the time of Jesus, every known person who wrote, what did they have to say about it? And so that it's just a survey with me making some comments along the way. And the book begins with a chart. So you can see right down the line who took which view of this passage. And we'll talk about the views in just a sec. And then after the chart, the whole rest of the book is chapter by chapter. Uh, what this person had to say about it, the quotations, the citations, and every now and then a comment from me. And so that was because, well, generally you attend your church services and your pastor might cover this and might not. Then maybe you run across it in your daily Bible reading and you might pay attention to it or not. Uh, as far as the specifics, I mean, you obviously would read it, but maybe it didn't catch your attention. But then after hearing so many people talk about it, from so many different people trying to really understand it, uh, there I went, and it caught my interest. And so that was part of my research is the historical side of it, just to understand who had what to say about it. And then, then of course, like I said, I followed up with a separate book just about Angel and a separate book just about demons and, and all that. How many books do you have published now? Well, I haven't really counted lately, but I... I think I'm up to 24 or 26. So kudos yeah. to you. This, I think, I mean, you're my favorite uh, guest. You've been on my show. I think we're on the fifth or sixth time. So we've covered <laughs> some of the, many of those books in previous interviews and discussions. So if anybody wants to check those out, go to my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates. And, and you know, you're, I'm a huge fan of yours as well. I mean, anytime you, you publish an interview, I, I I personally prefer to download them. I put them on my iPod, and that way when I'm at the gym or when I'm driving in my car, wherever I am, there I am uh, cool. listening to your shows, and I always get something out of them. <laughs> awesome. Well, good. Thanks. Of course. Uh, um, uh, where was I headed? We should read it. Why don't we start off with just for people who aren't as familiar with this passage, it's translation. I think you used the King James Bible, right? Yeah, I can read it. I have it in front of me. Cool. Do it. Okay, so this is actually just the first few verses of Genesis 6. All right, so. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, 
both man and beast and creeping thing, and fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So now, as we so, discuss, please continue. Uh, Go on. Yeah, when we initially talked about what kind of a show to do, I pointed out that from those just few verses, uh, you by necessity have to talk about uh, angels, maybe even demons, and Nephilim, and Satan, and giants. I mean, that said, you're you're already uh, neck deep in it because there's so much involved that comes out of that, and it's really um, a complicated tapestry. And so it's no wonder people have made so much of this over the years because, for example, notice that we need to understand who the sons of God were. We need to understand who the daughters of men were. We need to understand who what tra some translations have as giants are or Nephilim. And we need to understand why God refers to man when he's talking about the flood. And, by the way, we also need to understand what is meant by in those days and also after that. So it's a tremendous amount of uh, work to work your way through these mere few verses. And my uh, concept about why it's such a brief portion of a much bigger story about the flood and Noah is that, well, the Bible is not a book about angelology, right? So it's going to focus on humankind. This is just providing you, this is part of the premise. This is part of what happened, which led to the flood. This is part of why the judgment came. And so it's presenting to you in a couple of succinct verses. This happened, this is a premise, and then we continue on focusing on humanity because that's God's ultimate goal in the Bible is to focus on humanity and redemption. So, the, so that's why this record is abbreviated. It's all limited to this one verse. But we can, I think we can say that the pre-flood in Noah's age are happening pre-flood. Would you agree with that? I'm sorry, you broke up for most of that sentence there. <laughs> Let's try it again. I was going to say uh, that all this didn't, this verse is pre-flood. It's, it's talking about things that happened prior to the time of Noah, right? Right. It is just prior to that. Gotcha. This is why actually so I... We, yes. well, well, could, did you hear that? Continue. Okay. Yeah, I just stopped with the verse about Noah finding grace in God's sight because that, that would be the key to understanding. All let this led up to that, and then from there we get the story of the actual flood and then the survival of Noah and his family. Gotcha. And, well, I mean, the word, where, where does that come into play? Six. Um, I, heard, I heard you asking me where something comes into play at verse or what Genesis about 6. The, or not. What about, how does the word in Genesis 6? Oh, yeah, I'm just not hearing you that well. You're, you're breaking up. How about this? It's, it's not your mic or anything. It's the actual connection that's stalling every now and then. Okay, I'll put the mic back in. I would, where does the word Nephilim come from? You sound great right there. Really good. Where does the word Nephilim come from in Genesis 6? 
Okay, the term Nephilim proper, not the root word, the actual term Nephilim proper occurs twice in the Bible. Okay, and now most theorize that it derives from a Hebrew term, and some theorize that it derives from an Aramaic term, both of which would trace it back to a word that sounds very much like Nephal, basically, in either language. Uh, the Hebrew would mean to fall, and the Aramaic would mean giant. Gotcha. And now the Septuagint version, the LXX, translates the term Nephilim with the term gigantes, which obviously it, it's the word giant, but it literally means earthborn. Okay, now the issue is that Earthborn, gigantes, is the word used for the titans of Greek mythology. So then one issue we have to deal with as we go along is, are they being referred to as such because of height or because of the fact that they were mighty men, men of old, men of renown, right? Which is what the titans were as well. And I would throw in the concept that the reason why there's so many stories that ancient cultures share in common is after the Tower of Babel event, when humanity split off into groups, they would have taken what was then common history, and eventually, as they spread across the earth and time passes by, these would have came to be known as myth and legend, changing in that, or that uh, detail or this one, but the core remaining the same historical memory. Okay, so that's just a point I wanted to make, which is just because it uses the word gigantes and earthborn doesn't necessarily mean that it has anything to do with height, but that the fact that these were noteworthy men. Gotcha. I understand. So, so why don't we try to go ahead? There were elements like to just back up your point in the book, like there was, I think Armenians used the word herc. Or the Greeks use Hercules. They had the same kind of right. No, mighty, but different. The same kind of myth, right? I think I got your gist, but you broke up quite a bit there. So I think instead of oh, I'm just not I'm hearing just you. Say Hercules. Hercules. Okay. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, so I don't know. Okay. You know what? What the thing is, but. Uh, I tell you what, I, yeah, I think we're about to say the same thing, which is I don't want to keep interrupting and pointing out that I can't hear you. So if I ever can't hear you, I'll just go to where it seems like you paused and I'll keep uh, making my points. Good. I'll thumbs there you up. go. Thumbs up. <laughs> you didn't put both of your thumbs up to the side of your head. <laughs> That's a Crowley right there. Oh, there you go. I'll take a screenshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So go ahead and continue. Okay, I'll I'll continue before someone makes a meme of that. <laughs> uh, okay, so so who are the sons of God? Well, the main theories the 
the traditional, the original, and the majority view is that they're angels. I proved that in my book on Genesis 6. That's just undebatable. You can say you don't hold to that view, but it's just a historical fact that that was the traditional, original, and majority view. Okay. That's not that's that. really true because some of the Jewish authors are sons of judges, though, right? Right. Then you have a trickling in the views that, well, these were judges or they were noblemen or they were, this is a later view, they were Sethites. Okay. So those views start creeping up and then uh, it actually takes a few centuries for the angel view to sort of lose favor. But, um, I mean, my book just proves that what the original view was and shows you when it started changing. So now, one issue is if they were judges or noblemen, and then the daughters of men are viewed to be sort of lower class people, uh, why on earth does God get involved in that he's going to uh, set the lifespan to a certain number of years? Why is this viewed as something wrong or bad? Because no such thing was forbidden. I mean, and we know of no such forbidden uh, class structure. You can't intermarry uh, noblemen and common women or judges or noble um, common women. We know of no such thing. And same goes for the claim that they were Sethites and then the daughters of men were Cainites. Um, for some odd reason, firstly, why is it only males of the Sethites and only women of the Cainites? And why is it if the Sethites were so holy and righteous as opposed to the wicked Cainites, why did the Sethites want to marry with Cainites? And, of course, that's just really a fable that all the Cainites were wicked and all the Sethites were holy. That, that's just something somebody made up along the way. So that's part of the reason why those don't work. But... When we do think about the fact that, yeah, it was only male sons of God and only female daughters of men, then the angel view makes really good sense of that. Because the fact is that within the Bible, any time an angel's appearance is actually described, they look just like human males. Period, by the way. Uh, they don't have wings. They don't have halos. Nothing like that. Now, if you want to talk about cherubim and seraphim, they're a different category of being. It's not like they're a different kind of angel because their title is different, their job description is different, and they look different, right? It'd be like saying humans and bovines are the same because we both live on Earth, right? Uh, so in other words, these are different creatures, different titles. They look differently. Their job titles are different. They're different altogether. So anyhow... That's part of why the angel view works, is because they were male. And then mostly from the book of Job, chapters 1, 2, and 38, we get a very, very good, clear understanding that sons of God refers to angels. Now, there are other parts in the Bible where other sons of God are mentioned, especially in the New Testament, and it's just a fact that in any language, a word or a phrase can mean more than one thing, and the context will always determine the meaning. So that, for instance, Adam is referred to 
as a son of God. Why? Because he was created directly by God. Jesus is called the son of God. Why? Because he was created not ontologically because he's eternal God, but his flesh was created directly by God. Uh, Christians are referred to as sons of God. Why? Because we are put to death and we are born again as a new creation. And so that's basically the bottom line is that son of God of the Bible refers to someone that was created directly by God in one way or another. And then the daughters of men, it would just be just that, daughters of human beings. They're just the women. So then we get to there are giants in the earth. And I would say that the word giant does not belong in an English Bible. Because for one, it's, it's generic. And for two, it's used to translate more than one Hebrew word. And so it really causes a lot of confusion. and It's unnecessary. And you have to define what you mean anyway. I mean, what is a giant? Okay. Uh, William, may I ask you how tall you are? Well, I used to be six three and a half, but I'm old. I'm shrinking. <laughs> I'm about six three. Six three. Okay, I'm six even. So, I don't know about you, but just being six even, which is not very tall, it's not that impressive. I constantly have people saying, "Wow, you're so tall," and asking me, "Wow, how tall are you?" And I mean, this is modern day America. This isn't like um, ancient. Uh, Israelites, uh, by the way, the Hebrew male of those days averaged 5'5". Five, five. Okay, that's yes. males. Okay, males are generally taller than women. So 5'5 five, five for males average. So what is but a giant to them? What is a giant to us? Go ahead. I was just going to say, that was that's common in the ancient world. They were much, much yes. smaller even up until the modern world, like uh, George Washington. Do you hear any of that? Something about George Washington and then nothing. Yeah, thumbs down. But so my point is, yeah, there's not much use in using a word that you're going to have to spend a lot of the time defining anyway. Okay, so um, let's forget the word giant for now. It says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. Okay. So who are the Nephilim? Well, it's very clear, except that some people feel the need to say that uh, it appears the Nephilim were not the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men because it says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they their children, right? right? Um, I think that's just an issue of an odd English grammatical translation. I think it is definitely telling you that the Nephilim are their offspring. And an easy way to think of it is to think about if it is referring to the Nephilim as being some kind of other group that happened to be on the earth in those days, why are they just throwing it in? I mean, there's no reference to the Nephilim prior to that. There's only one reference after that. So why would um, this text be telling you Okay, here's what happened. The sons of God had children with the daughters of men. Oh, and by the way, there were these Nephilim guys who happened to be around anyway, so never mind that. Anyhow, let's get back to our story. You know, it doesn't make any sense. So it's pretty clear 
that the Nephilim are their offspring. Lifespans. Yeah. Um, there is a question as to whether the verse where it says that his day shall be 120 years, whether that refers to God setting a generic uh, time span, uh, lifespan limit, or whether it's referring to from that point until the time of the flood, right? And because we do, we do see a gradual decrease. Uh, quite drastic, actually, sometimes in the lifespans in Scripture. So that actually goes gotcha. towards my next point. Um, first, I want to talk about why in the description of the flood, it talks about men, right? It doesn't talk about angels. It doesn't talk about sons of God or Nephilim. The judgment is on man, the wickedness of man. And again, that's what the Bible wants to focus on. That's its purpose. But if it includes the Nephilim, that's not a problem at all to refer to them as men because they are half men, right? It's just like we call Barack Obama the first black president where he's only half black. But it's understood that is what is meant by that. And, of course, Trump is the first orange president. So, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> and so then comes the issue Worse of... everything. Yeah. <laughs> Then comes the issue of were there post-flood Nephilim? And that is an incredibly important question and a lot hangs on it because the one and only reason people think the Nephilim were unusually tall is not because of Genesis 6. It's because of Numbers 13. And the only reason some people think that there were post-flood Nephilim is not because of Genesis 6, it's because of Numbers 13. And so it's that second reference to Nephilim that really ties a lot of things together. And the question is whether it ties them to be together properly or not, or not. So part of the issue is the statement in those days and also after that, which some people take to mean in pre-flood days and also in post-flood days. Now, if you want to believe that, you at least need to admit to yourself and others that the text does not say that. It says those days and also after that. If you want to put words in brackets um, in that statement, you need to recognize that's what you're doing because that is not what it says. And so what does it say? In those days. Okay, what days? Well, the text tells you because it begins with a timeline starting point. What days when men began multiplying on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. That's those days. And when was that? Well, I have no idea, but it could be as early as when Adam and Eve's children started having children. Right. As soon as men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, it could have been that early. And so if it was that early, you have roughly over a thousand years that this could have been going on. And so since in those days is that starting point, then after that just means that, nothing more than that. It's just after that starting point. It's not necessary to understand it as being post-flood. Okay, somebody asked me this question. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
Uh, that would really take us off track. I posted an article about that. Um, I really don't think that there's... See, I don't want to just throw out a one-liner about that. I, I did write an article about it once, but I think it would take us too far afield because we can deal with the issue of whether there's Nephilim genetics around today by continuing on and understanding the text here. Okay. So now, uh, almost as a side note, I want to point out that one thing you do not see in Genesis 6 is Satan. He has... No active participation in this. Maybe he was influencing from the background, but he is not actually involved in this. And one reason I think he is not involved is because the fact is Satan is not an angel. Satan is a cherub, according to Ezekiel 28.14. And what does that mean? It means Satan does not look like a human male with no wings. It means he has four faces and four wings. And so maybe he couldn't get himself involved with the daughters of men because anatomically he doesn't have the appropriate uh, equipment, shall we say, with which to engage himself in such activities. <laughs> and so let's jump directly into Numbers 13 because that, like I said, is incredibly important to this issue. And I'm going to read it, the key portions here, okay? Okay. So the spies, which includes Caleb, are sent out into the land because God commanded them to take the land. So the spies went to search it out, and they come back. And here's what they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel and the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Okay, that's fine. Pretty generic. Continues on. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Great. So far, so good, right? And they continue. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Okay. The cities are fortified. All right and very large. Let's pause there a second. Uh, understand the historical context. These are itinerant wilderness dwellers. Okay, so they are very impressed by the fact that they're encountering cities that are big, that are well fortified, and well protected. That's very impressive to them. They're not used to that. They don't live that way. Okay? They continue on. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then they mentioned they also saw Amalekites, Hivites, Jezubites, Amorites, and Canaanites. Okay? Now, so far, they start out, here's the good things about the land, and then they're intimidated by the size of the cities and the fortifications. Okay? Pretty standard report, no big deal. Now, Caleb interrupts, and here's what he says. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Okay, so the report started out good. Then it became discouraging, and Caleb 
interrupts to say, ah, none of this. We can do it. We were commanded by God to do it, okay? And here's what the text continues on. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are in we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, or Nephilim, the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sights, and so we were in their sights. Okay, so you get the flow of this, right? They discourage the people because they're very intimidated. Caleb chimes in to encourage the people. Then they start discouraging the people again. Then we are told that they are going to or are presenting a bad report. And only then do they come up with this stuff about great stature, that there's Nephilim there, and just how tall they are. Right? Okay, so there's the flow of it. You can't just say the Bible says in Numbers 31 that there were post-flood Nephilim. You can't say the Bible's inspired and it says it. No, no. Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? And how is the text laid out for us? Because you'll notice it's only right before the fantastic claims that we're told they brought a bad report. Okay, so that is absolutely key. So to me, this reads like Caleb is interrupts to encourage the people. So then the spies take up their uh, fear-mongering scare tactics up a few notches, and they make up this story based on what by then must have been folklore, right? Or myth or legend. Oh, we saw the Nephilim. And boy, they are really gigantic. I mean, this is a kind of don't go in the woods type of story that they came up with. And we're told, we are told right then and there that it's a bad report. Uh, bad in part because by now these spies are being disloyal and they are rebuked for doing so. They're rebuked for discouraging the people to do what God commanded them to do. And part of that is obvious to me. They just made up this story. Now, let me point a couple things out. So let's say that we want to do some kind of one-to-one -one ratio so that as a grasshopper is the size compared to an average man, five foot and a half in those days, then so were the Nephilim to an average man. And if you do the calculations, let's say you round off the grasshopper to an inch tall, do the calculation to the 5.5 man, and then the 5.5 man to the Nephilim, they would come out to be about six, uh, 300 feet tall or 91.4 meters. Now, there's a couple issues here, one of which is you do have some ancient texts that really give preposterously tall uh, heights for quote-unquote giants. And the problem is, uh, let's say somebody was as tall as a telephone pole, okay? They would not be as skinny as a telephone pole. 
because there's an exponential growth. So you would grow wide as you grow tall so that if you're 300 feet tall, you wouldn't be 300 feet tall. You would never survive. If you survive, if you took a step, you would shatter your own bones. And the amount of nutrition you would need just to lay there and stay alive, much less move, would be absolutely tremendous. And so I don't think this was truly appreciated back in the day. Although there is one ancient text that talks about how much they ate, the giants ate, uh, which, of course, uh, I I cannot be that impressed by that because I know a baby eats a lot less than I do. So obviously a person who I can imagine being bigger than me would eat more than I. And okay. Also, um, when Joshua comments on this event in Joshua 14, he has Caleb, I'm sorry, when Caleb comments on it as recorded in Joshua 14, he says, my brethren went up with me, made the hearts of the people melt. Okay, so Caleb is making it known to us that he totally understood that these guys were out to frighten the people because they were so intimidated. Then in Deuteronomy 1, Moses affirms that, in fact, the Anakim were in the land, but says absolutely nothing about the Nephilim. And then in Numbers 14, God himself affirms that the Anakim were in the land, but says absolutely nothing of the Nephilim. He says, my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit within him and had followed me fully, him will I bring into the land, hitherto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. And that's about it. So apparently, Caleb, Moses, and God relate this event and affirm the Anakim were there, but say nothing about the Nephilim, nor, nor that the Anakim come from the Nephilim. I'm not sure what Anakim versus Nephilim mean. Where does the Anakim come from? I'm not sure. I don't know. The problem is we don't really have a genealogy for them. Obviously, the Anakim were named after Anak, and Anak is the son of uh, uh, um, Arba. So we know of Arba, we know his son was Anak, and we know the Anakim are named after him, but that's about it. So we, we really don't have Goliath. a genealogy for them. Is that right? No. No. Wasn't. no. No, no. There's no indication of that. Okay. Please continue. Yeah. He was a Philistine. Okay. Okay. So let's talk. Yeah. Let's get into the issue of giants for a minute. Again, a term that is meaningless. Because who is a giant to a five-foot-tall five person? Who is a giant to a, a national pro basketball player? Right? I mean, so there you go. There's no answer. Giant merely means taller than average, period. Okay. Now, generally, when you talk about biblical measurements, you're talking about cubits, and you're talking about 18 inches, maybe 18 and a half. And it's generally reckoned by the tip of a grown man's finger to the tip of his elbow. That's roughly 18, 18 and a half inches. 
Um, but it may have been a little bit less, in fact, if a man is 5'5", five, five, but roughly the calculations are based on 18 inches, 45.72 centimeters. Okay. Now, to me, another part of the number 13 issue is that we were like grasshoppers in our own site, right? And I am going to allow, wow, allow the Bible to interpret itself. Because if we determine from number 13 that the Nephilim were 300 feet tall, then guess what? We just figured out how tall God is. That's right. Because in Isaiah 40, 22, it states, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. So there you go. You know, the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to God, so he must be 300 feet tall. Okay. No, no. This is basically like if you stand on top of a building and you look down and you say, hey, those people look just like ants. Right? Right. So in other words, Isaiah 40:22 is providing you an appropriate means by which to interpret Numbers 13. That even though the spies were making it up, there's still no need to go on and make all these calculations because the Bible is using the same kind of symbolic terminology elsewhere. Okay. Now, we're also told that the Anakim were tall, which is another generic term, and the Emim were accounted giants as the Anakim and that the Zamzumim were tall as the Anakim. Okay, so were they tall? Sure they were tall. The Bible even refers to people being very tall. But again, those are generic terms. And the fact is, we only get two or three actual measurements of height for people in the Bible that are unusual. The rest you just kind of have to invent along the way. And by the way, I'm not claiming that there has never existed anybody who was over, say, 10 feet. I'm not claiming that at all. I'm just saying we need to take the Bible for what it is saying and stick to it. And then if we want to speculate, we need to be crystal clear that we're speculating. I'll give you an example. This happened just last week. Someone says, well, the Bible says King Og of Bashan was like 13 feet tall. And I said, oh, where did it say that? And they showed me the verse, which I knew very well. And I said, okay, there you go. It says nothing about his height. Nothing. It said his bedstead was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. Now, if you want to say, well, you know, you take the size of his bed and you subtract maybe a foot from it and then you, uh, then you get his height. Okay, if you want to do that, you just have to admit that that's what you're doing. You cannot say that the Bible is telling you how tall he is because it is not. Okay? Maybe he had his harem sleeping with him. Maybe he just enjoyed a gigantic beds. And by the way, his bed was six feet wide. Are you telling me his belt was six feet wide as well? I mean, was his waist that big? Right? If you measure my bed that's in the other room, you'd think that I'm about five times wider than I actually am by that reckoning. Okay? So then we have in Amos right, 2, so it's not 9. Uh, Go ahead. 
You're having a bad night of that, uh, William. <laughs> okay. Amos 2 states that the Amorites were strong as oaks. Okay, now can you propose to me some kind of one-to-one -one ratio we can calculate to figure out um, what the strength of an oak means when applied to a human being? And are we talking about a dead, dry oak or a living green oak? Well, obviously, it's telling you they're strong. But the problem is the, the text says that the Amorite's height was like the height of cedars. So then people say, ah, oh, well, you know, uh, for example, the Atlas cedar is average 40 to, six feet, to 60 feet. So that must be how tall the Amorites were. Okay, but obviously... Because the second part of the verse is not implying that you can make some kind of one-to-one -one ratio calculation. That neither is the first part. I mean, it's telling you that they were big and strong. To go right. beyond that is just to go beyond that. That's a metaphor, right? It's a comparison. That's my point. And it's just, it, it, the, what I'm trying to emphasize, it's not just me playing the game of denial. It's me saying when I read that their height was like the height of the cedars and he was strong as an oak. And I understand that the second part of the verse is obviously not implying that I can do some kind of calculation to figure out how strong they are. Then neither is the first. I'm just keeping the text right within its own context and taking it as is. Okay, then there's the issue of Goliath. Unfortunately, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts differ on his height. So he either was 6'7 or 9'8. So just shy of 10 feet or just shy of 7 feet. And so that's just, that is it. That is, um, oh, there's also a reference to an Egyptian man who was 7'5. Okay. So. The Egyptian man, Goliath, and the Amorites. That's it. That is the only three specific measurements that the Bible gives you. For all these stories of giants, the only three actual heights the Bible gives you are these three. And then the rest you need to be very careful about because you could be attempting to perform some kind of calculation where the text is obviously not calling you to do so. And one more note on this. Um, John Peter Lang noted the following in his commentary on the Holy Scripture, Volume 1. It is an interesting fact that Alexander the Great, in his march to India, arranged his campgrounds and cavalry cribs in double numbers and of unusual size, that he might produce on the inhabitants of the land strange ideas of the size of his army. So that, that is known of Alexander the Great and other ancient conquerors, that they were purposefully build uh, overly large structures or camps and then as they traveled across the country they would just leave them there so that when they left the people of the land would go and inspect them and say wow wow is that army ever impressive you know yes it were actually common for them to build two extra fires at night so that any onlookers uh -huh. would think there were more people than interesting yeah that was another tactic another trick but uh, we've got about 10 minutes left 
another interview in 10 minutes. You can just go through quick over the whole binded at your website, right? Or on Amazon, correct? Yeah, if you go to truefreethinker.com, you can find everything right then and there. And for those of you who have been leaving a lot of questions, I'm really sorry. As you can see, I had to kind of plow through this really fast to even get close to touching um, the basic points we wanted to make tonight. I mean, obviously, there's so much more detail we could jump into. But I do think one of the gigantic issues with this topic is the tie-in between Genesis 6 and Numbers 13. And I think it's extremely clear that there is no physical, actual, historical tie-in. It's just a tie-in of spies presenting a false report and using it as a scare tactic to back their point of view with Caleb, Moses, and God saying otherwise. And the issue becomes that when you understand this, then you can no longer claim that the Nephilim were gigantic in size because Genesis 6 tells you nothing about it. Uh, you cannot claim that they were post-flood Nephilim because the Bible knows nothing about it. And you can also not refer to any kind of concept of a return of the Nephilim because that's something about which the Bible knows absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing whatsoever. You can tell tall tales, yeah, you can speculate, you can do a ton of stuff, but if you're asked to point your finger to a book, chapter, and verse to back those claims, you will not be able to. And so I find that when I come to this understanding of the Bible, I kind of end up playing monkey in the middle between those who really deny a lot of the supernatural elements of the Bible and then those who take these issues and would tend to really, really go way too far with them. Gotcha. Now, I mean, there's other examples of exaggeration and time and dates that aren't always exact in the Bible as well. 40 days and 40 nights, it may not even be a literal time frame. It's just an example of a long time. You know? So some of the, you know, I think it's a tough element of biblical interpretation. But to be absolutely literal in some of these instances, in my opinion, is counterproductive. Yeah, and as I've shown, take it as literally as you want. I don't really care. I mean, the point is, uh, the Bible tells you how to understand likening a human being to a grasshopper. The Bible tells you that someone is strong as an oak. And you're going to say, well, that just means that they were strong. Oh, but they're tall as a cedar. Oh, that must mean that they're actually as tall. You, you can't do that. I mean, it's hermeneutically, exegetically, it's inappropriate. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. This book that you wrote is part of, uh, you were mentioning earlier in our talk, part of a, to investigate. What are the other books that, that with this one? I think you're asking me if any of the other books are related to this one, basically? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me just make a statement and then I'll, I'll answer that. Um, I do take the angel view of Genesis 6. I do accept that the Nephilim were hybrids, half human, half angel. So that is not an issue for me. I, I, I believe that because that, that is clearly what the Bible is saying based on many evidences, including Jude and Second Peter 2 who would back up this concept that the sons of God were angels. 
My issue is I want to stick as close to the text of the Bible as I possibly can. And it turns out that, yeah, okay, maybe the whole story of the Nephilim isn't as sexy. Uh, <laughs> it's not as exciting. It's not as sci-fi as some people make it. But that is what I see in the Bible. And now, of course, I've just kind of tried it through a lot of stuff generically. Uh, I'd be more than happy to present the specifics to anybody who would care to engage this issue because I actually enjoy it very much. So re related to this book, I'm in the middle of a series, which is what does the Bible say about? Okay, so one of them is what does the Bible say about angels? The one that's about to come out is what does the Bible say about demons? Then I'll have one, what does the Bible say about Satan? And then one, what does the Bible say about Nephilim and giants? It'll be an entire book just on that. And then finally, what does the Bible say about various other paranormal entities in the Bible, such as evil spirits, lying spirits, and uh, you have the beasts, you have all these weird and wonderful creatures <laughs> that the Bible mentions. And then the book that's strictly research-based, really nothing but citations and quotations, the paranormal and early Jewish and Christian commentaries. And that's literally uh, me presenting to you over one millennia's worth of comments from Jews and Christians and what they thought about angels, cherubim, seraphim, Satan, the devil, demons, the serpent, and the dragon. And uh, I should say that uh, William knows this very well. It's always best to purchase books from the author, unless when, you know, you're not Stephen King. So, yeah, if you go to my website, you'll see the link right up top where I offer a discount buying from me directly because that is always better. I mean, Amazon's good for advertising your books, but, man, do they ever take a gigantic cut of the sales. It's true. And I highly recommend all right there. Books. Yeah. I've read, I think I'm on your fifth book right now. I highly recommend them. Very, very well researched. Very, and you know, you really, you really do a fantastic job of going through all those sources on those references. So this is well, one. I appreciate of the, that. Very, yeah. You're welcome. And, I, and I, so again, this, sorry, it's on Genesis six: Affairs, Sons of God, Angels Are Not. A survey, a survey of early Jewish and Christian commentaries, including notes on giants and the Nephilim. Ken is www.truefreethinker.com. Some great information there and uh, links to other sources and his books as well, which you, uh, if you, you're interested in reading, check them out on his website. Now, I want to apologize to everybody involved in the chat. I personally find it difficult to speak and listen and answer and read my notes and also read the chat. So uh, I apologize for not doing that. I will get involved in the comment section within the next week or so. So if you have something you really want me to deal with, I will be in there uh, after the show within the next week or so every now and then, uh, seeing what you have to say and uh, dealing with anything you might have to bring up or point out or help with or challenge, anything. And if you want to listen to my show, the next show I'll be on is titled, it is uh, Joe from the Carolinas. I'll be talking about the smiley face killers in about two minutes. Ah, uh, yes. If you're interested in for being on the show, on Genesis 6, Affairs, Sons of God, Angels or Not, 
a survey of early Jewish and Christian commentaries, including notes on giants and the Nephilim. Thank you so much. William and audience, thank you so much. A pleasure. Take care.